Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency and the host of Chatting Cyber Podcast. Today, we have a very special cyber celebrity with us. Uh, Andre, thanks for joining today. Mark, really um, thank you for having me on this uh, distinguished podcast in the industry of cyber. Well, thank you, Andre. And uh, with you being on this uh, show, hopefully it becomes a little bit more distinguished today. So, so, uh, so Andre, my, my first question to you, we always start off with where the guests are from. And, and you have a, a very interesting background growing up in Czechoslovakia. So my question to you is, how does a boy growing up in Czechoslovakia end up being a PhD CEO of one of the more well-known incident response plan, uh, incident response firms uh, here in the U.S.? Um, oh, thank you. Mark, it all starts with a haircut like you have. You need to have a good haircut. Okay, that's very important. <laughs> but I feel also very privileged that around the age of 19, I was profiled by something very similar to intelligence agency here. Uh, and they offered me a job. And they asked me, would you like the job uh, that with a salary that your two parents actually make? My father was a political dissident. In 68, he joined something called a, uh, Prague Spring. And most of the time till age of 14, I basically grew up in a, almost like a political camp. So my childhood was very different from most of the kids that you can imagine because my father was a politically prosecuted prisoner. Um, and I think that would really distinguish my level of the trust or understanding of society. Uh, and then um, when the government actually approached me, I didn't tell my father for a year because, my, of course, my, my father hated government uh, for what they've done to him. And um, even though the Iron Curtain melted. There were still leftover of the cold era in the air, right? And most of the individuals involved in the government still had a heavy touch to the eastern part of the hemisphere, as you know, as you know it. But I truly enjoyed it. It's for me the idea that I'm going to be part of like a very specialized force in the cyber was very appealing. And I was a mathematical physics student and I got involved in a crypto. So first of the things that I've done was doing a lot of cryptography, something very similar to like an NSA type of work, CIA work here in the US, right? Like a breaking the code and working with the codes. And uh, after around two years, I was uh, placed in uh, almost like a department of energy here. I oversaw two nuclear power plants, like industrial control systems. Uh, but primarily two nuclear power plants and water power plants, like an energy grid in Europe. There was a big movement and the government was basically trading these agents to uh, really look at the nation state type of attacks or intrusions into especially nuclear type of facilities for understanding of how, for example, plutonium is enriched, where is it enriched, where is it bought from, where is it basically being disposed, the pricing on the market. So there was a lot of competitive analysis at the time among the various you know, East, West and countries who got involved into, into the program. Sure. And that's how it really started, right? And I did it for four years. Uh, there were few provisions marked to it. No dating, no meeting people anymore. Just go to school and back and forth, right? So I also lived very lonely life as a student. Not really lonely in the sense that I was lonely. I actually exercised a lot and did a lot of specialized training. But I decided that uh, cutting that social life for me uh, but move to that career that was very unique uh, can really shape who I am today. 
I, I think that's uh, a commendable story. And, and I, I congratulate you for taking down that, that road of perseverance and being able to kind of separate the personal and the professional life. I think younger folks today, that's one of the biggest challenges that they have. And the fact that you were able to do that and do it so well, again, I, I commend you for that. Um, without getting, without sharing too much um, or any, any um, you know, any secret sauce, um, given your history around critical infrastructure, working around, you know, nuclear, you know, do you have any comments around what our grid looks like today? We hear, you know, uh, the president as well as other elected officials talking about national and critical infrastructure. Um, just curious into your, what your sense is around, do you feel like it's susceptible? Do you not? Um, any guidance you could provide would be greatly appreciated. So when I came in here after a while, I was involved with the uh, Department of Justice and then also with some sort of specialized forces here. And I tell you, part of investigations that we've done, one of the first cases I had was actually in utility company around oil in Dallas around 15 years ago, when nation state actually penetrated the company. And what I realized is that some, that some of the basic principles of industrial control system and, and how they are managed. So for example, in nuclear facility, you have devices that are completely disconnected from the internet. And you can only carry a medium that, that's not rotating disk or not like a flash drive. It has to be, for example, a DVD or a CD-ROM. And it's a carry from computer to computer. So it can be even medium that you just basically plug into the computer. So there are some very strict procedures how, for example, these facilities do operate. And it's, and it's some of the levels also, like let's say how you read the data from this industrial control system. So let's say a computer system can read it, but can write into it. And then you have a segment that can actually write into it, but they may be not connected to internet, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at, for example, in the colonial is, we dismantle all of that because it takes too many people and too many systems to basically interact, right? At sure. that level, right? So what happened, for example, in colonial, you can see that these policies and these type of procedures have been abolished, meaning that Computers have different access to read and write to the industrial control systems. And while that's probably economically more feasible and saves some money, it also creates issues when there is a computer intrusion. And now malware gets on a system and the company can't really confirm, it's not about, forget the threat actor right now for a moment, but how do we know the malware did not cause any issue with that software running and didn't override the pressure and send the wrong commands through the serial, serial connections. These are like a serial connection, sometimes very primitive, by the way. It's like a serial yeah. connections, like yeah. a really, I'm not talking like, okay, so it's maybe not a nice pin serial connection, right? But it's like a really older type of a systems where back and forth into it. And how do we know they didn't write into them? And I think that's what you see on the present table to dealing with is like, okay, is it, if they ask, let's forget about this infrastructure and let's upgrade it all. And the answer is no, you can't, right? It's gonna take another 10 years, 15 years for all these vendors to come up with better programs and maybe create these boards. And by the way, do you really wanna upgrade them and create a Wi-Fi or, or GSM or you wanna keep them isolated? And I don't think even industry right now knows what they wanna do with this, sure. right? Because when it's primitive, it's also not, let's say, as easily hackable. Now you make them GSM or you make them um, Wi-Fi enabled. We had this maybe more uh, movement 10 years ago. A lot of them got hacked, sure. right? Even in Colonia Pipeline, um, some, of, some of them believed that industrial control system was connected with the Wi-Fi devices that actually were updated Active Directory from directly 
from a colonial. And if you recall, there was a nation state trade actor who picked up the hashes and the password right over the firewall devices called Soho devices, right? And there were multiple vendors that were vulnerable to this type of attacks, meaning that you could pick the user, enumerate the users and the hashes and then crack them. And what we see in Colonial, the threat actor coming right in with the VPN credential of a user uh, into the organization, right? So maybe it's not a good idea to do that, right? So you have these two momentums where people saying, no, we should go back what we've done before in the industrial control system and completely separate the read and write. The other group is saying, no, no, we should upgrade everything, connect everything and secure it because there is a secure way to conduct a business. And now imagine you sitting in a White House and you see these two groups fighting. Right. And so, so, okay. So one group is saying it's going to be better for a profit and shareholders. The other group mm -hmm. is saying is like, no, you have, a, it will basically create two, three personas and we're just going to continue doing that. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a, if it's a good answer to this. I think Mark this much above my pay grade, but I see these two dilemmas on a table, uh, sure. but I can tell you what happened in the court system. Look at the federal court. Federal court went back to typewriters, right? And I said, no, no more connectivity in a, in a courtroom. Uh, and, and someone said, well, but you type everything and you scan it and you upload the platform. Okay, but not in a courtroom, sure. right? So um, they divided some of the um, separation of the privilege and the duty in a federal court system. So I, I expect something similar happening in an industrial control systems. And I think the regulation is gonna be, look, Maybe we're gonna create criticality level. And maybe nuclear facilities, you can have a read and write. Sure. Right? Maybe you go back to the old era where you guys are gonna be carrying this uh, well, all DVDs and they're gonna be scanned and they're gonna be plugged into the computers with some ROMs. It's just, you know, it's gonna be Blu-ray now, but maybe that's what it's gonna be. So in, ensure segmentation and new technology is not always better technology is, is effectively, you know, some of the, uh, the key takeaways, right? Yeah, it's, it's issue with the new technologies. Like, like look at the iPhone is that how much QA can you do in a year? And it's getting more robust, robust, a lot of features, a lot of this. When things are simple, how you hack simple thing, right? Mm. When, when the QA, the code is very concealed. And I think that's what the industrial control system people are saying is that, look, the code is so primitive that it's easy to do quality assurance. Once you start in introducing complexity and integrations, we, we, we're not gonna be able to control it. Sure, sure. So, so let's, let's switch gears a little bit uh, from um, um, industrial controls to more about, um, I guess, external what's going on outside of the US. We've been hearing a lot recently, um, most notably in the news about these ransomware gangs. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing about these gangs, some of the trends that you're seeing? Have they been getting more aggressive, less aggressive? Are they timid uh, from law enforcement? What's been your experience with some of these gangs? So I would, uh, so in the commercial market, there's a company that's a life first over the last six years, a market we're dealing with maybe 150 to 200 ransomware attacks, like a higher level of attacks on an annual basis. I feel very privileged because we served the indictment, if you recall, that SAMSAM, the hospital is being attacked mm -hmm. for two Iranians. We supply around 60% evidence to the Newark uh, FBI division for that case. So we also work on really some on high end profile cases that led um, with the Department of Justice and FBI to prosecution some of those groups. We also pointed to a website called XDedge where RDP credentials have been resold. So we do have a, quite a bit of experience with um, 
uh, especially some of the, I would say, Eastern European type of a country. Yeah. And what I've seen uh, over the years, and we as a company and our investigative unit, Life Resting, was that maybe around eight, nine years ago, these ransomware payments were like a 15, 20, 40, $50,000. And it's almost like Silicon Valley programmers getting together, try to program some kind of computer, right? Like another pair outside of Apple and Microsoft, right? And a pair of computers is gonna be created. Then you see these ransomware payments going to $100,000, $200,000. Then you see them going to seven figures. And now when you see them at the seven figures, it almost created almost that ecosystem of economy itself that every group, like especially for example, we're following very closely the Eastern European groups, is um, every two years or three years, they rebrand themselves. Sure. It's almost like VC funds have maturity, let's say seven years. They have <laughs> funds now with a two years maturity where after two years, the dismantle operation, they divide the Bitcoins and they move to the new gig. And it's called a new ransomware, right? There's new, this like a Meco ransomware and people need, didn't hear of. Like, but it doesn't matter the name because it's always like a new ransomware that you hear, right? Mm-hmm. Revel, Netwalker, right? But the main reason why that is happening is these are kind of the same people where some people just literally said, well, I'm out, but you can use my three Bitcoins for standing up infrastructure. As long as you pay me 20%, that's what we saw, on, for example, on our dark side. People leave the Bitcoins in, in the wallets they know are already under federal law enforcement watch. It's very hard to move them and launder them, right? So um, it's not easy for them to launder. I'll get into that. But you, it created a basic ecosystem where uh, there is plenty of coins available, not necessarily cash, but coins available that can be converted to the cash to pay for the infrastructure and that the talent can be recruited. And it got to the point where the talent on the criminal side is really good. It's really good. These guys are very precise. I shared the uh, Rebel presentation uh, with you and you can see how they use, for example, chain exploit, kind of what we saw from a nation state in the exchange hack. There's literally chain almost doesn't leave any trace, doesn't leave any errors, right? Authentication uh, by, bypass, file upload, code and command injection, right? These are like what, these type of things we've seen 10 years ago in nation state. Sure. Right, so now you get, it got really to that level of a professionalism with the groups where they're really good, they ask seven figures, they exploit companies in a matter of five to 15 minutes to 30 minutes. They laterally move very quickly. They encrypt the company. They understand third-party liability very well, right? So they profile companies with a high third-party liability. Uh, we even had a company where they, in, uh, they got a company in the San Francisco area and a company was not re- responsive to them. They reported company to federal law enforcement, right? I said, look, we are honest criminals. We do this criminal activity. The CEO of the company and company try to put it into the carpet, right? You're gonna do something. And I imagine you are a federal agent and you have a possession of information. The company is trying to put a data breach that you know, they send you a data breach with the data they're posting online under carpet. You have no choice just to go to the company and try to indict these people, right? So they, these threat actors right now do understand completely insurance market. They understand how the insurance operates, how it's important to, to this game. They understand the third-party liability, and they target companies with a third-party liability. I also have a list of marked companies, just insurance companies, and also brokers hacked last year. 
over 300 companies. And they don't really wow. try to like hack them for uh, uh, data. They, they, what they really try to, what the threat actors try to understand are what are the premiums and what are the limits on the policies. And they try to get, for example, extra spreadsheet, like let's say uh, your marketing department Mark would have, right? Because you're competing with other brokers, right? You like it or not, you're competing with other brokers. They try to understand who are you competing for what prices and who are these companies, like a mid-sized companies where a policy would be 50, 60, 80 million dollars that they would get paid. Don't make a mistake here, I told everyone, trade actors are not hacking empty houses, right? The robbers also don't rob empty houses, okay? They rob the houses with the three Mercedes and beautiful house, right? The house that's empty, I don't think anyone's really excited to rob, okay? And it's gonna fall apart when you open a door, right? So these third actors do diligence very well. They play the card of third party liability. They understand probably also insurance policy of that company, not in the sense they read the policy, but they understand what the premium is also what the limit of it, of that is and probably who, who owns it and how likely they're going to get paid. It's interesting to hear these cyber criminals are becoming uh, cyber insurance experts. <laughs> but yeah, they, they try to compete with your market. You're going to watch for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Andre, you, you had mentioned um, a, a couple specific types of ransomware gangs. And um, um, one that you had mentioned was Revel, right? So we hear people call it re-evil, revel, revel. So when we talk about revel, who are they? What have what they What have they really been known for prior? And then what has been their big attack that 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 really just made um, uh, airwaves uh, all over the news um, recently? Well, so, so for sure, the Kaseya is the attack that uh, we have seen um, in it. The but I, I would say the group is really more famous as a Sydney Lubiki, which is um, a ransomware that has been around for a little bit of the time. And the group is also partially like rebranding itself, meaning that they have the members, like the speculations are that the members of the unit are somehow connected to Russian government. But not in a sense where Russian government, for example, would supply uh, money or anything into them. But imagine, hypothetically, Mark speaking, that that exploit for Kaseya does exist in a database of some intelligence agency called SVR or GRU, right? And it's in there, right? So we're not going to name nations, but there is one nation who has a lot of exploits on the planet, and we know who they are. Right, and 75% intelligence of the president at that house gets from the cyber intrusions, right? So there is one nation who is notoriously doing this like really, really well. We don't have to be very specific. They're really good at it, by the way. They're, they're one of the best, okay? So the other countries try to replicate this model too, how to get that intelligence. And in being part of the um, special operations forces, I can tell you that, look, when a government is taking government, we consider a fair game. Okay, because that's the way it is. Like, look, you guys like it or they don't like it. This is the way it is. This is how the intelligence game has been played for years, right? That's why we created good movies at the Hollywood, right? So you guys can watch it. But that's the reality, the government, government. What's not fair if, if the government type of a military grade weapons are turned into commercial enterprises, mm. right? So if the two jet marks tomorrow fly the rocket in your house, 
I think you've got a big problem and you're, and you're not going to have a house. You're going to have a swimming pool, right? So you should probably convert a house to a nice large hall that you can just put a swimming pool in. But there's no, le- no level of help that you can do with your police station or anyone else. Right? You have to call backup and your backup is part of DHS, right? To try to do jets not to shoot at your house, right? So, so and that's what the issue is when it comes to um, the rebel group, that the rebel group first gets maybe some intelligence on these exploits or the tools that, that we do believe and we're debating are somehow connected to an intelligence agencies in, in Russia. And uh, at that level, basically, they're truly using like a cyber military type of a skill set against the commercial enterprises, right? So, uh, of course, the government of Russia denies it, any allegations that this is somehow connected, or even that some of the ex-members, let's say, retired, uh, are part of that unit or are part of that uh, rebel group. But what we actually have seen with a group in Article Mace is that it has a lot of this military type of intelligence and precision. Sure. Uh, in it, right? So when we see on a Kasei attack, is the, the one question that you've seen in the news was, well, how someone creates such a really good exploit, right? This actually has uh, authentication bypass, can upload the files and command and execution. And these are the characteristics. So it's basically chain exploit that's being used. Uh, and you know, like, how, how is that really possible? And the answer is, look, this is how the military have done it for years, right? So you're looking at at a level of the group that that has this type of level of sophistication. Uh, another one in uh, important, and this is regardless of that this target is Kaseya, right? This is regardless of the Kaseya being a target. The group is also very formidable in sense that they do understand that you have a Kaseya, you have MSSPs and you have the victims, right? So you have a director party liability in here that Kaseya would have through MSSPs to customers mm-hmm. and hackers right now love their party liability. That's the card at play. That's the market they go after. These are the best targets for them. So again, the group at a rebel does understand the legal system in the United States, right? So it's not, you're not talking a, a, a low-skilled criminals, right? You're talking of criminals who really do understand the market. Um, and uh, what also seems to be that a group is formed from the previous groups that dismantled with some of the new members. And at some point of a time, we were looking at some of the Telegram groups that you can get in, but you can only get in Mark if you pay from a wallet that conducted criminal activities and was affiliated with a ransom, right? So that's not sure. easy to do, sure. right? But, and you sure. pay only fraction into it, but you get into this group. And that's usually how the recruitment happens and it happens inside of it. We don't have access anymore to, uh, to, the, to those groups, um, but the, Ultimately, that's how groups move from section to section, and they basically um, uh, create these members uh, into it. We also see that as an ecosystem of, let's say, call an investors, people who live the bitcoins in, in it, just because they can cash them very quickly. You have more um, direct now policies around the bitcoins, anti-money laundering. It's not as easy as what it used to be. Uh, it's still doable. But imagine someone wants to cash up 40 millions out of the Bitcoin wallets. Now he has to find a ways. And a lot of the exchanges, because the Bitcoin wallet is now known and how it's moving in ecosystem, it's traceable, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to find a way to get to the exchange. The, the trick used to be convert to Monero and get out mm-hmm. uh, on, on the different type of exchange. 
But now get to conversion at exchange is not the easiest, sure. right? So also the trade actors, let's say they're able to cash, let's say three to four million a year in the same way, but not 40, not 50 anymore. Sure. So the Bitcoins are basically being left in ecosystem and the VC, for example, with the, um, our evil rebel group is that the Bitcoins are basically used now to pay the people, create an infrastructure, and um, almost like create this investment type of economy, right? So on one side, we're prohibiting people to cashing on AML. On the second side, we're basically enforcing them to create a, a VC type of economy where they reinvested these Bitcoins because now they're in the criminal wallets anyway, right? It's much harder for them to get them out. So why would they not basically some people become an investor and don't do crime and recruit the new members who need more money, are hungry and want to make a million. So that's a signature of this trade actor. And um, uh, it's, it's questionable for how long they're going to stay. We've seen that these groups are usually two, three years kind of deal and they go mm -hmm. away, um, which, which when you say two, three years, meaning two, three years being active, which maybe takes a half a year and year preparation to assemble. It's like a military yeah. unit, assemble yeah. unit, maybe another year to cash out the unit, right? So maybe looking like a four or five years at the max of the lifespan into it, and they move to another group, right? So this is pretty much a signature of that, uh, that group. Understood. So, so, so Andre, um, you had mentioned Kaseya a few times. Um, can you tell our, our listeners what was the Kaseya vulnerability? What did it cause and what impact it had for MSP providers? So, so they exploited something called VSA, which is basically an internet-based Kaseya system that handles all the clients in uh, in, in that one, one server called VSA server. The vulnerabilities that they exploit was uh, something called authentication bypass. It's a Mitre T1556. Uh, then arbitrary file upload. It's a Mitre framework T1203. And code or command injection, uh, Mitre framework T1540 and Mitre framework T1190. So these are what we call the technique tactics and procedures that straight after use. It's also something what we call a chain exploit, meaning it's all in one code, right? So the authentication bypass gets them in, then the file upload lets them upload the files they need, right, for deploying, and a command and code injection let them interact with the system fully into it. And this is truly a military type of a uh, tactic on a system. Usually such an exploitation leaves very limited footprint mean error logs or some error on a system because the system doesn't even know what that is. Sure. It doesn't even have like a system calls to deal with this. It doesn't even understand like, aha, it's like an aha moment, right? Like your body gets very specific virus that never seen before and doesn't know what to do with this. Like your immune system just trying to figure out what I'm gonna do with this. So this is very deadly type of the exploit and the threat actor basically gets into it. What then they do is then drop the files in this Kaseya VCA server. And because the agents are taking in those files, they created uh, a file uh, in it. And that file was uh, like an agent.crt, which converted itself to agent.exe. Again, it's not important. It's in the process we call the obfuscation. So it's a, it's a decoding and deobfuscates itself on that endpoint, and then basically executes on that endpoint. Uh, and from that, the attack really starting and the endpoints. But the beauty of it is that you have this one server that had all these agents, 
Mm-hmm. That basically, by, the, by this virtue of auto-update, gets that file, the malicious file, and runs on its own. So, they, so the lateral movement is very trivial here. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautifully flawlessly, flawless process to basically uh, exploit all these endpoints because that Kaseya agent is all on the endpoints. Why they pick the Kaseya? Look, Kaseya has a good insurance policy, okay? Now, it's, it's a good, what, what we're hearing, the trade after profile then, because it's a formidable vendor who has a good policy to pay first, also have these lot of these mid-sized MSSPs, right? So these are not usually large, like a Citibank, whatever it is. Like, a, sure, sure. like a, my MSSPs with, a, I don't know, 500 to 2,000 endpoints. But it's massive liability for that internet-facing system. So it also only affects these internet-facing systems if, if they use something different than Kaseya, like Kaseya Cloud, they would not be affected, right? So you're looking at these providers who, like for example, the first call we got was a provider in a Connecticut here who had around 100 um, clients and anywhere between 500 to 2,000 endpoints at every client that the Kaseya system handles all of them, meaning all 80 in one, in one box, right? So there is no separation. So it's a, for trade after this is beautiful because it spreads right away sure. to 80. Few police stations were part of it. Few fire stations were part of it. Um, few critical infrastructure pieces were part of it, of this managed service provider. So now they're basically swiping from hospitals to police stations, to fire stations, to law firms, to other commercial markets. So it's a, it's a great third party liability, uh, basically, that just got exploited. And uh, the threat actor basically can uh, now leverage for extortion. And that's the card they really want to play. You know, and the insurance industry is always worried about systemic type of risk. And this is very much that systemic type of risk that, you know, we always constantly talk about is you attack one in particular uh, vendor and how that can expedite into, you know, hundreds of other affected individuals. Um, Andre, I mean, what were you seeing in terms of uh, ransom demands for this particular? Was, was this higher than normal? Was this lower than normal? Are they only going after Kaseya? Are they asking for the, uh, the clients to be providing uh, a ransom demands as well? How, how is this all playing out? So the groups like um, Revel, they're looking always between 30 to 60 million one-time p- payment. That's the way it's been. And we've seen this trend, I would say, like a two years ago with a group called Mace too, where mm-hmm. uh, there was one that I mentioned to you um, where uh, we're not going to do... Uh, tell it what it is, but it was a cloud provider for medical companies. Uh, it was in the news, not going to mention here, it's not important, but they paid around 35 million after the negotiation from around 50, right? And it, it did hit the news, the payment was not disclosed to, to the media. Um, so again, not important to say, it, but uh, these threat actors are really looking at that payment. So they're that good with the understanding of how the third-party liability, how the provider basically going to play into it, who to exploit, how to pick the target. By the way, Colonial was in that range too. It's just they hit it really wrong um, target because it's got a lot of federal government attention, or create a lot of attention into it, and they have to lower the payment to close like a $5 million and get out. It's basically the trade actor said, look, let's cash some money out of this and get out. Sure. But original Colonial Ask was in that range of 35 to 60 million dollars that was that was the promise they're going to get paid and also they thought it's going to be very quiet like these trade actors don't want anything very noisy or government being heavily involved right look they want they're looking for fbi being normally brought in as a part of investigation right Uh, everything goes under the carpet everything's going to be sealed and no one really is going to know that 
such a high payment has been has been granted and um, and paid. But it's normal, Mark. It is very normal that everyone who has this third-party liability and exposure should be looking for that payment. Like I gotta ask questions like, are you thinking it's gonna get 250 to 200 million, right? Like the way it's escalating. I said, well, I, I think so. I mean, if you look at some of the large providers, if you have, we had a nation state uh, five years ago, one of the largest nation states, and a company had to sell, sell 4 billion of a foreign asset, 4 wow. billion. Uh, so in a nation state space, we already have seen very heavy damages of some of the companies. This was medical devices company who could not sustain the pressure and dealing with all the litigation and the cost, anticipation litigation, lost data, lost research. And they operated in the 60 jurisdictions. So they had to give up 20 jurisdictions just to deal with the other 40, just to make it easy for them. So and that basically, cause them to sell an asset worth of an entity, $4 billion. So talking about $4 billion being sold to a payment of 40, 50 million, where in a nation state type of attacks, when they uh, take the intellectual property, the checks already have been very heavy and financial losses have been very heavy. Uh, not even talk about the intellectual property that has been stolen and the medical research and medical devices takes 10, 15 years to collect. Imagine someone has all the research now, all the data for, for those devices. So that's, that's huge. Imagine, imagine insurance carriers covering that loss, right? And the answer is it wasn't covered. No one wants to, I, I'm sure your agency would not want to cover $4 billion loss of any of the medical providers, right? It just, it just doesn't exist. These companies are basically on their own right now uh, in that sense. So I think that's where we're heading. We're heading to the era where no policy is gonna be covering these maybe 150, 160 million because the companies will not go to that. It's gonna be extreme to get that type of coverage or it's gonna be expensive. Um, but the payments are gonna be at that level and the threat actors, if we don't stop them, they're gonna move next. The next target is not only third party, but that exploitation of that intellectual, almost like that intellectual uh, property, almost like that research, targeting the companies that now know that, look, we're gonna sell your data to competitors, mm -hmm. or we're gonna disclose them to a countries that we know they really want them, right? And that's a very different extortion. And how the company is gonna deal with that? How the company that's doing medical research, imagine this happened at this medical research company where a yeah. trade actor would come back and says, I want a half a billion, or, I'm selling your data. Well, first of all, the company has no guarantee they're not going to sell the data. Sure. Okay. But now, added half a billion to dealing of the four billion loss, or not having those jurisdictional issues, is it worth it? It's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting to see the way that this one plays out. Um, Andre, one last question for you before we wrap up today. You've been talking about some of these large demands, you know, $50 million, $500 million. Um, 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 I think you even said one north of $500 million. Where, how easy is it for somebody like yourself or, or somebody, you know, one of the White Hats to go out and procure that kind of amount of crypto uh, in 2021? Is it easy to obtain that much crypto? So we have... Mark, uh, one of the three forensic companies, and we talked to Michelle Corvina, the Department of Justice, very early, like how to do this legally, these payments. 
Uh, we do not have an OFAC license. There's something called Office of Asset Control that should control these payments. And you do need to cooperate with the federal enforcement and you do need to do forensic investigation. And uh, But we do actually have an exclusion to make the payments at a certain condition. And we uh, are at one of the exchanges called Bitstamp where our account is actually hosted and we can procure uh, pretty much cryptocurrency into it. It will take us a few days to, to buy it for sure. 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 Um, but we do have a power to literally go and buy as much crypto, as much money we dump in at the market prices. Um, I can imagine though, like an Armageddon day where the crypto is not available because everyone needs to buy it, right? So yes, the scenario can happen, meaning that should be like a stock up some crypto. So we do have some crypto, uh, but not much sure. in the first place. But most likely we would literally just go one of the top exchanges and we would just start buying. Um, probably would we inflate the price, like meaning like we start buying the price probably at the end of the day is 30% up? Yes. Another piece very important to it is any crypto we buy, like let's say the $10,000, the customer probably is going to see it at $15,000. That's and that's one of the things that I wanted to address is most people don't realize about that that uh, the fee the crypto fee in order to procure it and what what that looks like. So if you could just um, as we end, if you could just talk a little bit about that the fee and the and the the cost of the procurement, I think that'd be very helpful for the listeners. Yeah. So the challenging piece for that crypto is this uh, that look the anything as you know has some sell stacks attached to it. Um, there are some fees attached uh, to into it. How are you going to put that on your balance sheet at the end of the day? And also some legal aspect of dealing with the office of the uh, asset control involved attorneys. So usually a company that wants to do this like a really clearly and legally almost adds another 50% by virtue of the legal component, uh, fees, uh, all the taxes that needs to be satisfied here and pay everyone according to law at all the jurisdictions. So you're looking maybe in addition close to 50% on top of any crypto you, you are trying to buy. And there are companies who don't do that, right? So for example, uh, they don't have AML exclusions. They just buy the crypto, they pay the victim, and they're hoping for the best. Um, but the normal legal way, uh, those fees where you need to look what the federal government is seeking in terms of a transaction, how these transactions should be taxed, um, mm-hmm. what are the fees at the exchange, what also are the legal fees that you need to involve, and how you're going to try to work it out with the Office of the uh, uh, Foreign Controls, um, basically add up, add up a component in, in, in that payment. Well, Andre, I mean, this has really been an exciting conversation. We've covered a tremendous amount today, and I really appreciate the update. I'm sure this is very meaningful for the listeners that um, you know are on the podcast today. Um, so I'd like to thank you for joining today's show and coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. 